0: podcast
1: has bad words guess what the minimalists are going on tour with a live version of the minimalists podcast and I want to invite you to join us for a night of less find your nearest city at the minimalists.com slash tour we'll see you there
0: every little thing What's up, y'all? So, so there uh, we got a text message, Ryan. This week, uh, someone was like, "How could you possibly? How could you call your audience simpletons?" I'm like, "Well, Ryan and I are the head simpletons, right? Like, We're the it,
1: yeah, exactly, vice president and president simpletons, right?"
0: <laughs> and, and so, like, for those of you who don't know, the like the long term inside joke is like we registered the dot com because the simpletons dot com was not available at the time. <laughs> Uh, But, Ryan, simpleton means gullible or foolish. And, by the way, we're all gullible or foolish with respect to something. And I think
1: that is really going to come to the forefront today. I just love how you responded. You said something like... If I have to explain a joke, it doesn't make it funny, but here it goes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I said, I hate I hate explaining my jokes, but here goes nothing. <laughs>
0: Here's the thing. Uh, obviously, we're, we're being silly. We're actually trying to reclaim this word, simpleton, because to some extent, Ryan, Ryan you and I don't take ourselves very seriously, no. especially when we talk about very serious topics, and we're going to talk about a serious topic today, one that is a fairly contentious topic. Today, we're going to talk about... What's healthy? and what mm. isn't healthy. Yeah. And we're going to do that with our guest today. Dr. Paul Saladino is back. Paul, thank you for being yeah, here, it's dude. It's so good to be here. Thanks thank you so here, much man. for having me. It's good to have you. You can check out his podcast. It is called the Fundamental Health Podcast. Now, Paul, we usually answer voicemail questions So people call in and we, we give responses. But instead of doing that to start, I wanted to talk about a few things here. First off, a disclaimer, I am not a doc- doctor. You're not? <laughs> no, I'm not, Dr. Nicodemus. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) However, we have a a medical doctor here with us today, but uh, uh, I think it's probably prudent to say you should always consult your doctor beforehand, but I also realize that doctors often fail us. I've been very failed Mm. by the medical system. I've been failed by several doctors, and Paul, you are a medical doctor, and you have been discontented by the the sort of traditional system, and and you've sort of had a, a reawakening.
3: That's
2: true. It's true. I mean, my path to medicine has been circuitous. Before I was a physician, I was a physician assistant in cardiology. And what I quickly realized as a PA in cardiology was that the system that I was a part of tended to treat symptoms rather than getting to the root cause of an illness. Mm. And I think... Before the podcast, we were talking about healthy obsessions and unhealthy obsessions. Well, I think one of my healthier obsessions is understanding the root cause of things. Maybe in another life, I could have been an engineer. I I tend to think about medicine with an engineering mind more than a traditional medical mind. And I'm so interested in what is causing something. That is the most interesting piece of a puzzle for me. And when you can understand that and see all of these complexities that are built on that root cause, that crux shift and change. It's such a satisfying thing. But what Western medicine seems to do, and I don't think this is uh, the fault of any physician, it's more the paradigm and the zeitgeist or the actual way that we think about problems in Western medicine, which is not really a systems perspective. Mm. What Western medicine tends to do is kind of work up here with the symptoms, work in the branches and the leaves and say, oh, here's your symptom. Here's a medication for your symptom. Right, yeah. What we are taught in medical school is which pill to give for an illness Mm. and what an illness is called. We are very rarely challenged with what is causing that illness. And so mm. that is where my discontent arose. And that was why I went back to medical school after being a PA and thus began the second part of my medical journey.
0: Yeah. Now, your new book, which comes out on February 25th, is called The Carnivore Code. And so I know for some people, they, they even hear this term carnivore or carnivore diet or car- carnivory. And they think of like someone who is is obviously just eating meat. And that seems like, well, first off, we've been told that, you know, plants and vegetables are, are the healthiest thing we can eat. In fact, our good friend, Rich Roll, has been on this podcast three or four times now, mm-hmm. once with you. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to bring you back on your own because Rich has been on here a bunch. And he's one of the healthiest people I know. Yeah. He's a big advocate of a plant-based diet. He is also a vegan. He's an athlete. He's in his 50s. And he is wildly healthy. In fact, I would argue that most of the healthiest people I know are have have a large number of plants in their diet. However, you've written this book, but it's also not I mean, uh, it is not uh, dogmatic in, in in the way that many carnivores or many vegans uh, can be. It seems to me you take a non-dogmatic approach. Can we talk a little bit about about this book but also, what what convinced you that plants might not be that good for us?
2: Yeah, there's a lot there. I love that that you're highlighting this question, and I think this is going to be the question for this podcast. What is healthy, mm. and how do we become healthy? I was on the podcast with Rich, and I think that a lot of health goes beyond food. We're going to talk a lot about food today, but most listeners will be aware that health is more than food. It's lifestyle. It's how we we live our lives. And I talk about that in the book as well. That's kind of one of the side points, that... Returning to an ancestral way of living, an ancestral lifestyle, is something that we can pretty much mostly agree is a healthy thing for humans. The main point of contention is How did our ancestors eat and how should humans eat? But beyond that, if we just put that aside for a second, we see lots of commonalities between um, healthy peoples, indigenous peoples, uh, peoples who are not in modernized countries in terms of lifestyle that probably facilitate health in many ways. Things like exercise, time with community, family, meaningful Mm -hmm. relationships, meaningful, uh, meaningful careers, meaningful passions in their lives that they pursue. Um, sleeping in dark environments, not over excessive to blue light, you know, lack of exposure to toxins, and non-processed food, okay? Mm -hmm. So those things I think most people can agree on as healthy and health promoting. And as we'll get into, um, a lot of people who do that also choose to eat plants, but there's this new movement of people like myself who are kind of challenging that idea and saying, Wait a minute! Wait a minute! You know, meat is healthy as well, and mm. I try not to be dogmatic about that. And we'll dig into we'll dig into all of that as well. But so, I went to medical school after being a PA, and um, I had an autoimmune disease. So I had eczema and eczema is connected with asthma. Mm. And people might say, oh, that's just eczema, it's not a big deal. Well, my eczema got pretty severe at times, to the point that I had super infection on my skin with impetigo, and it limited me from doing many of the things I like to do, specifically jujitsu, martial arts, basically being outside and exercising. Mm. I had itchy patches on my elbows and knees, at times I've had it on my face or my neck, my lower back. So. Skin conditions, these autoimmune skin conditions like eczema, um, which is connected with asthma and these atopic medical conditions can be pretty debilitating for people. And Western medicine basically hands you a steroid cream and Mm. says, here's your steroid cream. This will fix it. And it will. But does it treat the root cause? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't. And I'd used steroid creams in the past. When I was in college, I had a very severe flare of eczema. I used a steroid cream and it caused sleep disturbance and mood disturbance and weight gain. And I was not satisfied with that sort of a paradigm for me with my autoimmune disease. So throughout the process of having an autoimmune disease, I was trying to understand what is the lever here? What is causing this? And I think it's food for a lot of people. This is one of the most important messages that I seek to advance in my work regardless of the diet we choose, I think that humans making intentional choices with regard to food is awesome and laudable. And I hope that Western medicine as a whole will wake up to the fact that food is a big lever in health and disease, and that collectively we can start to look at which foods might be triggering disease in people, specifically autoimmune chronic inflammatory diseases like eczema. So -hmm. in my own life, I was trying to figure out what are the foods that are triggering this for me? and I went through a process of kind of elimination. A lot of people do these elimination diets. They're very powerful. Some people eliminate meat, some people eliminate dairy, some people eliminate plants. And what I found for myself was that when I went raw vegan, Mm -hmm. many, many years ago, I lost a lot of weight. I lost a lot of lean, healthy, glucose controlling muscle mass They lost a lot of weight it wasn't
0: it wasn't good weight it was muscle weight right
2: yeah so uh for people that are listening to the podcast i'm a pretty lean guy i wasn't overweight at the time i I lost veins
1: like that (laughs) (laughs) i lost muscle mass i lost muscle mass one big vein right you know you said glucose managing muscles i didn't realize muscles help manage glucose like that
2: absolutely so muscle Mm. is important for glucose disposal when we are ingesting glucose, when we are um, even ingesting any food. It has to do with uh, insulin sensitivity, which is Mm. kind of an esoteric concept. But Mm. when we lose muscle, We are both weaker. We are more structurally prone to damage in our bodies and kind of breakdown or fracture. And we are likely to be less insulin sensitive because the muscle is where a lot of the nutrients go. It's the glucose disposal organ. Mm. The muscle and the fat tissue play kind of delicate roles. They have this interplay, this dance that controls our metabolism and our insulin sensitivity. So losing muscle is generally regarded as a very bad thing both in young people and in old people there's a condition known as sarcopenia which is loss of lean muscle mass
0: and we're not just talking about big muscly men like yourself even though i mean you're not like a a bodybuilder but you are you're very lean and you're you're very fit but we're talking just everyday men and women uh, need to have a certain level of strength that's optimal for their overall health
2: and and exactly and that is correlated with a certain amount of lean muscle mass what we know is that as we lose muscle mass when we age, we become more prone to basically death. Mm. You know, we become more susceptible, we become weaker, and cachexia, which is what happens with cancer, is the loss of muscle mass, the loss of tissue in the body, That's generally what kills us with cancer is this loss of lean muscle mass. Mm. You can think of lean muscle mass as kind of like that that energy bar in a video game. Like muscle is kind of like your life force. It's one of the life forces that you have in a video game. And if you lose muscle mass, that life force bar goes down in a big way. It's not a good thing to lose. So when I went raw vegan trying to affect my eczema, I lost 25 pounds of lean muscle mass. And at that, so I mean, I'm 170 pounds right now. At that point, I was 145. I was pretty skinny. And everyone would say, you're too skinny. And I'd say, no, no, I'm good. The eczema didn't get better. My mood didn't get better. Um, my sleep didn't get better. My energy didn't get better. My GI system got worse. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I had horrible gas. It was not fun to be around mm-hmm. me. You guys would not have wanted to sit around me in a room like this when <laughs> I was a vegan. Bloating. <laughs> no, bloating, gas, issues oh, with works. the GI system. And so, okay, this isn't working for me. Let's move on to the next thing. And I heard...
0: Um, but wait, you were getting a lot of fiber in your diet. We're told that fiber is is a good thing. Exactly. Um, and, and in fact, I remember... 2014 we were on tour ryan we were out in uh, salt lake city mm-hmm. and I, I, I was having some some gut issues and i went to see a gi doctor mm-hmm. and they just prescribed um metamucil yeah, right mm. husks yes yeah. and i'll tell you actually it, it did help me become more regular because i was relatively constipated and so it seemed overall like a a, a positive thing although i found out since uh, from our, our our close friend tommy wood we have a, a shared friend Uh, Tommy was talking about how maybe that's actually bad for the mucosal layer in the gut. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, you don't seem to think that fiber is necessarily a, a good thing. I don't know. Are, are you saying it's a bad thing?
2: Uh, I think it either is neutral or bad. And certainly in some clinical situations, we see vegetable fiber being quite worsening for conditions and exacerbating some people's gas, bloating, constipation, and diarrhea when they add fiber. Mm. So in the book, there's a whole chapter on fiber. In fact, there's really one and a half chapters on fiber and kind of debunking the myths around fiber, the specific need for humans to have fiber, to be regular, to have healthy bowel movements. That's clearly not Interesting. the case. Yeah. And there's a study that I talk about in the book where they took 60 people, they divided them into three groups and everyone in the study had idiopathic constipation. So they had constipation that was kind of unknown. Idiopathic is a word we use in medicine, which means we don't know what's causing it, Mm. right? So people in this group had idiopathic constipation. They had one group that had normal fiber, one group had reduced fiber and one group had zero fiber, zero fiber in the diet. And the zero fiber group, 100% of those people completely resolved all of their symptoms of gas, bloating, pain, and constipation with zero fiber. Hmm. And so if you really dig into the medical literature surrounding fiber, it's not clear that fiber is beneficial to humans. Now, in some people, fiber is not going to be harmful. But in others, especially people who seem to have overgrowth of the small bowel, we call this condition small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, Mm -hmm. which has to do with probably loss of diversity in the small intestine. Fiber can be very worsening or very uh, can be a real problem in terms of uh, symptomatic management and doesn't seem to be feeding the right populations in the gut. So yeah. it can be a problematic thing. At that time in my life, I had a lot of fiber, mm-hmm. and that to me led that for me led to a ton of gas and bloating, and it, it just it could not have been healthy because. In An olfactory way, I was a nightmare. <laughs> it
1: was just a nightmare. That is so interesting how just different diets affect people differently. It's it's like for uh, for Rich Roll, like be, his vegan diet is great for him, um, but for you, it, yeah, it makes you bloated and gassy. It's funny. I have so anecdotally, when I eat red meat, um, I get backed up. Mm-hmm. Like I, so I, I tend to take more fiber if I'm eating red meat. Is that is that because I'm combining the red meat with something else? Or is it, and you probably can't solve my, you know, this, this issue right here, but I'm just curious. I'm throwing this at you because uh, you're a doctor. So uh, I hope you don't charge me for this appointment, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, w- the, <laughs> it was uh, yeah, the I mean, in the mail. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so, I mean, what do you think, man? I mean, is it, so when you take red meat, like for me, if I take red meat and I eat that, it's usually with like some veggies or with a salad or something, maybe a sweet potato, something like that. Um, I do notice a severe difference in the, the way that my GI track uh, if operates.
2: Yeah, it's quite interesting. I think it may have to do with a couple of factors. So what I talk about in the book, which is about the carnivore diet, which mm-hmm. is a diet where you eat only animal foods mm-hmm. and you avoid meat or avoid plants because mm-hmm. of the toxins in it, is that when people are eating more meat, um, they can develop constipation if they're not getting enough fat. Uh, and okay. so I wonder if there's um, something happening with your specific GI microbiome or mm-hmm. your gut. Are you eating lean meat? A lot of times... As humans, we're not used to eating fat or fatty meat anymore, whereas evolutionarily, we appear to have hunted the fattiest animals and yeah. sought those out. So, yeah,
1: that's that's a great point. No, so when I eat when I eat like a steak, uh, if if I do, I used to do filet mignons a lot, which super is super lean, which is pretty lean. I don't do those anymore because I I have found I like the taste of you know. Uh, just something that is a little bit fattier, like a prime rib. Mm-hmm. But what I do with the prime rib is I'll eat the fat if it's chewable, but sometimes you just get the gristly fat that I don't eat. So by default, I actually make it a little bit leaner than when it comes because I'll leave those fatty parts out. That's interesting. So what you're telling me is is eat more fat with the steak. Because when I eat ground hamburger meat, that's the only exception is when that doesn't really affect me. Interesting. And that's because it has more fat in there, I would think. It
2: could It could have more fat depending yeah. on how... Um, how the fat from the chuck roast that's ground into the ground beef is is
1: marbled, or yeah. how much fat is in that? Yeah, yeah, interesting. Okay, cool.
0: That's now, now we talked about toxins, and so instead of doing voicemails today, I went over to Whole Foods and I bought this magazine called Heart Health, and if I'll <laughs> there's not one prime rib on the cover, this is going to be a very uh, YouTube-centric episode. So Jordan can put this up on. On YouTube here but so we're looking at this and I figured Paul what we could do is just talk about this does look healthy to me this looks actually looks like a picture of health Uh, this is the special Eating Well edition, right? And so if you're just listening to this at home, I'm going to describe the cover to you. I see a bunch of plants, some fruits and some vegetables. I see limes and grapes and avocado and and asparagus and broccoli and blueberries and it looks like maybe some sort of beets and uh, that's an eggplant, raspberries, some peppers some uh strawberries and tomatoes and uh, maybe that's an orange and some carrots and uh some corn so some for all intents, intents and purposes this
1: is a vegan it's all vegan
0: and it does appear to be although yeah.
1: throughout it's not
0: the whole magazine isn't vegan so i thought mm. we'd just start with the cover and then we can flip through here and you can tell me what is because this looks like the picture of health to me what mm. is unhealthy about this this cover
2: so this is i i, I love this conversation. Um, if we back up for a moment, you said, this looks healthy. And we think about where we get those ideas of health from. Mm. There's so much conditioning that we have as humans that gives us the narrative around this. This is almost Shakespearean. Nothing is either good or bad, but thinking makes it so, right? Yes. Like we are thinking that these foods are healthy. This is the picture of health that we are given. This is the programming we are given uh-huh. as mm. Westernized humans for the last 70 years. And yeah. we'll probably get into why that's important, with regard to how misleading epidemiology studies can be, which are observational studies. But it is so interesting that you find this to be what's healthy, right? Right. And if there were a steak on the cover, many people would say that's not healthy.
0: Right, that's red meat, red meat isn't healthy. They would say uh, cholesterol, they they would say- um, Fat? Yeah, too much saturated fat Mm -hmm. and and fat in general. They would say higher risk for cancer. They would say carcinogens. Are you saying all of that's wrong?
2: All of that is wrong. All of that is wrong.
0: Okay, you so heard it here first.
1: All of that is wrong,
2: <laughs> and we can talk about why. It gets a little deep, it's a nuanced thing, mm-hmm. and I talk about all that in the book. There huh. are a number of chapters debunking the myths surrounding why red meat will not cause heart disease, will not cause cancer, will not cause decreased longevity, will not cause any of those things. Mm-hmm. And you
0: you seem to back that up. There's hundreds of studies <laughs> that you reference.
2: There are hundreds of studies that will show that, okay. and the problem here is that when we are thinking about what foods are healthy, we are generally told that with epidemiology studies. Mm. And this is where I think a lot of the consternation and misconception arises. Epidemiology studies are not experiments. They are population surveys that seek to correlate health outcomes with recalls of dietary preferences over Mm. the last 5 to 10 years. Does this make sense? Yeah. So,
1: so what I'm hearing you say is like, these are kind of biased.
2: They're absolutely susceptible to bias and mm. confounding. Okay. So in the book, there's a graphic that I um, have reproduced that correlates the divorce rate in Maine with the per capita consumption of margarine. And we will see, we will see that they are highly correlated, more than 99% correlated. Okay? Okay. Does that mean that as the divorce rate in Maine declines, margarine, or as margarine declines, the divorce rate in Maine declines? Does that mean that margarine was causing divorce in Maine? Mm. Right. This is the absurdity. There's other correlations we can draw between the number of movies Nicolas Cage appeared in and suicides by hanging. Oh, right. Wow. So that, that actually makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> like so No offense, do, Nicolas Cage. <laughs> do we really think that do we really think that uh, you know, it's possible, but this is this is what epidemiology does. Yeah. It creates a hypothesis. Sure. And so much of what we've been told regarding what is healthy and what is unhealthy is based on observational studies, which were never meant to infer or create um the judgments regarding causality. Mm. Only interventional studies can tell us about causality. Interventional studies are studies in which we we have a control group, like the constipation group, Mm -hmm. and we take one group and we do one intervention. We take another group, we do another intervention, and we watch them closely over a short amount of time. Epidemiology are population surveys. And so what we see, and this is true, there are many epidemiology studies which show that the more fruits and vegetables we eat, the better our outcomes. Does that mean that fruits and vegetables cause those outcomes? We can't say. Mm. It's a possibility. We can generate that hypothesis. But there are many other alternative hypotheses. This is margarine and the divorce rate in Maine. Another hypothesis, which is felt to be quite likely by many individuals, is that because we've been told that these are healthy foods, Mm -hmm. who eats healthy foods?
0: Healthy people.
2: People that do other healthy behaviors. Oh,
0: Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. So is it non-smokers
2: non-smokers more likely to exercise, yeah. more likely to be in the sun, higher
0: community maybe
2: higher socioeconomic uh, status, uh, more regular doctor visits for uh, for mammograms and rectal exams and colon cancer screening. and so when people are doing these surveys, they will often these surveys will get these epidemiology studies will often get reposted to the internet. They make great headlines. There was recently one in the journal of the American Medical Association. Kind of on the flip side, showing the more meat you eat, the more risk you have of cardiovascular disease. Mm. And again, it's an association. These are not, they didn't take a group of people and feed them more meat mm, and right. then see more cardiovascular disease. They took a group of people and they surveyed them and they said, How much meat did you eat over the last 10 years? Mm. And they looked at the people who ate the most meat and they had more cardiovascular disease. Hmm. So this is potentially confounded by unhealthy user bias. On the flip side of this eating well cover with a coterie of vegetables and fruits are people who are eating meat. We have been told that meat is bad for us for the last 70 years. So who eats meat? People who are rebels. Mm. This is James Dean, right? Right. (laughs) These are people who ride motorcycles, who smoke. And how many people do you guys know that eat steaks without bread? Right? that eats steaks without french fries, right. that eats steaks without other sugary foods. Yeah, we're yeah, talking about the many.
0: standard American diet here, S-A-D, SAD. Right. and And in the standard American diet which Ryan and I definitely grew up on Oh my goodness. we were the two yeah. fattest kids in our school so we met when we were fat little 5th graders mm-hmm. I was the only kid fatter than Ryan yeah. in 5th grade oh how the tables have turned <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I mean we would eat cheeseburgers as a snack so it was it was meat now even the quality of the meat was very questionable right it was certainly corn fed and and probably factory farmed and definitely not organic and and, and uh, what it was being fed was a bunch of pesticides as well, mm. plus all of the the pesticide-ridden sort of products that went along with the meat, the bread, the the cheese. I'm saying that in air quotes because American cheese. I don't think that's even cheese. Yeah. And and uh, and then of course all the the salsas that go with that, and the side of French fry, well, cheese fries, cheese mm-hmm.
2: fries. What's in the sauce? Oxidized vegetable oils, right? Mayonnaise right. is made from canola oil, corn yeah. oil, soybean oil. So. Epidemiology can't distinguish. They could survey you and you would say, I ate a lot of cheeseburgers. And mm. they're gonna say, Joshua's fat, he eats a lot of cheeseburgers. The more cheeseburgers you eat, the more meat you eat, the fatter you get,
1: mm, okay? Yeah.
2: Epidemiology is not meant to do that. It's meant to generate hypotheses, which we then test with interventional studies. The interesting thing is that interventional studies with meat have been done. And I talk about these in the book. And Any guesses what they show? Tell it's, me. it's not harmful. It's not harmful for humans. And why would it be when we think about it through an ancestral evolutionary lens? And I talk about this in the very beginning of the book. Humans have been eating meat for the entirety of our evolution as hominids. And we can get into this in a moment. Many anthropologists, many scientists that I looked at, that I read, that I talked to believe that the human brain exploded in size, not literally, but figuratively, about two million years ago because we began eating meat at that time. There's evidence for hunting practices. Uh, these, Odual, these uh, Acheulean tools, so these bifacial tools that kind of look like stone knives, mm-hmm. evidence for butchering and hunting. It all happens about 1.8 to 2 million years ago with the, arisal, with, the, um, with the appearance of Homo erectus. And then suddenly, if we look at the cranial vault size, brains get bigger, mm-hmm. and they just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger over the next 2 million years. They went from 500 cc to 1500 cc. The point that I advance in the book, the thesis, is that eating meat made us human. Mm. why would something that has been a central part of our evolution be bad for us that's just sort of the intuitive perspective right and then when we look at interventional studies we don't see that either so there are studies that i talk about in the book where people were uh they replaced carbohydrates in the diet of any source with eight ounces of meat so they ate less carbohydrates these could be things like vegetables or bread or pasta and they added eight ounces of meat so half a pound of meat And they looked later on, uh, weeks later, to see inflammatory markers, immunologic markers, DNA damage, all of them went down. Mm. They all went down. So how do we reconcile this, right? When the epidemiology studies, like the one from JAMA, say you're gonna eat more meat, that's correlated with more cardiovascular disease, but the interventional studies say meat doesn't harm you. In fact, it looks like it's good for you, Mm -hmm. and we know Intuitively, that makes a lot of sense because we've been eating meat throughout our evolution. It's incredibly nutrient rich and we can talk about that as well. There's a real discordance here. And within medicine, it's widely accepted that interventional studies always trump epidemiology. But this is the message we've been getting from this magazine. Epidemiology, epidemiology, epidemiology. And the very misleading sandy, rocky, unstable foundation of this is healthy user bias Mm -hmm. and unhealthy user bias. Mm -hmm. And I think this is at the root of why so many people are confused and why there are so many conflicting studies. I'll just add this and then um, let you guys weigh in on all of this. The other thing about epidemiology is that we can, for almost any epidemiology study that shows a correlation between eating vegetables and improved outcomes, we can find another that, that does not show it. Mm. Similarly, with eating meat, for every epidemiology study that shows that with eating meat, we have, uh, there's a correlation with poor health outcomes, there are conflicting epidemiology studies which show improved outcomes with eating meat. There are very large cohorts in Asia of over 200,000 people and they show that the men who ate the most meat had the lowest rates of cardiovascular disease, and the women who ate the most meat had the lowest rates of cancer. Wow! How can this be, right? How can this be? Are we really that different genetically? No, it's a different narrative. I think it's reflecting a different narrative. In Asia, meat is associated with uh, prosperity and affluence. And so who eats meat? People who are doing the healthy behaviors, mm. people who have more money, just like the people in the U.S. and the westernized world. So those are the people, that's the same group of people. They're eating meat in one place and they're eating more vegetables in another place. And so this is why it's so murky and we have to really look beyond the epidemiology or realize that the epidemiology can be so misleading.
1: That's crazy. Maybe we can like just dig a little bit deeper with these studies. So what, what is it about like these foods on this cover? that are unhealthy? What is it that... Yeah, let's l- let's, do, let's do that because... Uh, We're
2: getting into plant toxins now. Well, we, we can,
1: <laughs> but, we but, can. Al- but also, he-
0: here's the thing. We, we, we know that 97% of people listening to this roughly are omnivores, meaning right. they eat both meat or animal products, and they eat plants, and maybe about 3% are, are vegans, and, and and then functionally 0% are carnivores. <laughs> 0% are carnivores. The <laughs> only carnivores in this room. <laughs> right, but, but here's the thing. You don't eat any plants. Is that correct, Paul? I don't eat any plants. Okay, and but in your book, you also, and we'll get into the, the carnivore-ish thing. We can talk about grass-fed versus factory farm. Mm. We can talk about all of those things. But let's talk about the plants that are on this cover. You don't, tell me why you wouldn't eat. Let's go just go through a few of these here. Fig. Figs are
1: very delicious. Delicious and nutritious nutritious by the way if i
0: have to pick between a vegan and a carnivore diet just for deliciousness yeah
1: definitely vegan might diet. be yeah
0: yeah because right. i can have cake all day on a vegan that's right diet. and oreos <laughs> and pillsbury dough products all right <laughs> so so let's let, let's look at this so a fig is delicious but what's wrong with eating a fig so i
2: want to dig into that i just want to frame this all with something you brought up and i appreciate this so much i try so hard not to be dogmatic about this the main messaging that i seek to advance with this this pretty contrarian idea of a carnivore diet is number one, like we just kind of talked about, meat is not bad for humans and has been a central part of our evolution, is super nutritious. To remove meat from our diets is to deprive ourselves of some major nutrient sources.
0: You would say some meat is bad for humans, though, because if <clears throat> if it's a factory farm cow that has been fed a bunch of pesticide, uh, uh, corn and soy, and, and then... <clears throat> Uh, we we have that 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 cow that is slaughtered and you know it's not grass fed but but also maybe it's it's charred really darkly extra well done carcinogen there are, there are times where meat is bad for you correct
2: quality matters quality matters yeah. and when i'm saying meat i'm thinking. The three of us are a tribe. We go out and hunt meat that's well-raised, you know, that's wild or from a regenerative agriculture farm, right? Okay. We go to Belcampo after We go this. to Belcampo. We mm-hmm. go to White Oak Pastures in Georgia. We go to these places where they're doing it right, and we can talk about that. Okay. The other part of the messaging that I hope to share with people is that plants are not as benevolent as we have been led to believe. Mm. And if we just think about the predicament of plants... Let's just put ourselves in the shoes, in the shoes of plant, in plant shoes, (laughs) in plant root shoes real quickly. And then a lot of what's on this cover will become more uh, clear. Cool. So in the book, I offer this uh, thought experiment. We're at the beach and I say, Joshua, Ryan, I'm going to bury you guys up to your neck in the sand. Mm -hmm. I dig a huge hole. I put you in there. I pack you in super tight. And you're like, whoa, this is like way tighter than I've ever been buried in the sand. I can't move at all. Mm -hmm. And your head is there. Your head is sticking up. And I go, I'm going to... I'm going to paint your face like a soccer ball. You're like, why are you doing that? And then all of a sudden, this busload of irascible, hungry, irritable six-year-olds from the soccer team shows up on the beach. How do you <laughs> oh, feel? No. How do you feel?
1: <laughs> I feel like I'm about to be p- kicked in the head. You feel a little vulnerable, yeah? right? Yeah.
2: <laughs> okay. Plants and animals have been co-evolving for 450 million years. During that time, plants have always been rooted in the ground. Mm-hmm. There are not really that many mobile plants. I, I mean, they happen in cartoons, but plants can't really get up and run away from animals, right? Mm-hmm. So plants need animals to move their seeds around through fruit sometimes. So plants and animals need each other and animals have always eaten plants. There are herbivorous animals, right? Mm-hmm. But if all plants don't develop some sort of defense mechanisms, they're just going to get eaten up immediately and they will be extinct, right? Mm-hmm. Their genetics will not get passed on. There has been a constant arms race between plants and animals throughout the entire coevolution of these two kingdoms of life. Hmm. And you can see it happening. You can see plants evolving toxins, animals evolving defense mechanisms. Plants evolving toxins, animals evolving defense mechanisms.
1: Interesting.
2: And this is true. I mean, if you look at botanical chemistry, there are thousands and thousands of toxins in plants all sorts of plants, in the leaves, in the stems, in the roots, especially in the seeds. Mm. Um, And we can talk about fruit. That's a little bit different situation. But if you look at plants, they are riddled with toxins. And there are are more overt demonstrations of this with spikes, right? Cacti, roses. They say, get the heck away from me. Mm -hmm. I'm going to put a spike out there, right? Mm -hmm. Plant toxins, which are essentially known as phytoalexins, are plant chemical spikes,
0: right? Mm -hmm. So People may be aware of this. Is that why, like, so I see a pineapple here on the cover. If I eat too much pineapple, my tongue starts burning. There is yeah.
2: a there's a digestive enzyme in there that, that can bother the tongue. Pineapple's a fruit, so uh-huh. it's probably not as toxic as many of these other things.
0: Although it, it it's the most delicious fruit, and that's why it <laughs> yeah. has that sort of exterior cover on it. It's, wow. it's like its own sort of cactus
1: in a way. I didn't realize it was a digestive enzyme, so... Like, we have to digest the pineapple before it digests us. Almost. (laughs)
2: Almost. Almost. But we can look at this, and I can show you some pretty significant plant toxins. The peppers are the ones that jump out at me, and I'll talk about those. But we
0: we eat spices all the time. Right. right. But aren't they like a hormetic stressor? We'll get it. That's, oh man, so many rabbit holes to go down. (laughs) So
2: if we look at the, if we look at many of the compounds in these two peppers, the red peppers and the orange peppers here, they have lectins, which are carbohydrate-binding proteins. And... In pretty good cell cultural experiments, these lectins, the lectins, the carbohydrate binding proteins, and many of the other phytoalexin toxins in these peppers are known to open the tight junctions in our gut. Mm. These are from the nightshade family. Nightshades are particularly virulent or particularly bad in terms of this in our body.
4: Mm. They
2: have been shown repeatedly, whether it's tomato or eggplant or peppers, to do this, to really irritate the gut lining. Mm. And the goal here from plants is clear. It's saying, don't eat me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, stop. I'm going to
0: irritate your gut lining. Stop <laughs> eating me. And <laughs> what you're saying is because they don't have legs to run away, this is how they effectively run away.
2: This is how they effectively run away or effectively manage their diplomacy with animals. Mm. If we look at the way that animals consume plants, they don't consume plants unabated. They don't consume plants excessively. They'll move from one plant to another plant to another plant. There are documented cases, which are myriad, regarding mass deaths of animals who are cloistered in grazing areas and forced to only graze on a limited number of plants. Mm-hmm. And they get overconsumption of toxins and they die, whether they're oh, wow. wild buffalo or bison or elk. There was recently something I read about giraffe overconsuming acacia um, because they didn't have anything else and mm-hmm. the toxins overwhelm the systems. So it's very clear that even herbivorous animals are aware of this and have had to develop systems to detoxify plants. Mm-hmm. This is part of the messaging that I hope to advance in the carnivore code with the book is that in some people, these plant toxins are really poorly detoxified. And Mm. some plants can be more toxic than others. Right. I think a lot of people will have a sense of this. They'll say, you know what? I eat oranges and my mouth gets red. Or I think when I eat chocolate, I get a rash. Mm. That is a plant toxin Mm. affecting someone negatively. That's what happened to me with my eczema. And that was kind of my story that I cut out more and more plants. And finally, when I cut out all the plants, the eczema went away at long last, but never did until I cut them out. So maybe I'm someone that's particularly sensitive to these things. You might be able to eat some plants, mm. you might be able to eat other plants, but in general, we should not forget that aside from fruit, and that's a special case we'll talk about, plants are generally not our friends. Mm. They're beautiful and they may or may not have some consciousness, And mm-hmm. they, but we love to look at them and we know that our parasympathetic nervous system is affected positively, the sort of relaxing nervous system when we're around plants but a plant doesn't want you to eat it.
0: <laughs> mm. you know? we, I, mean, we all, I think we know that intuitively with most plants. like If you walk outside right now and you, you see a palm tree, you don't go up and start eating the bark. And, and, and yet um, these plants on this magazine in particular, I mean, not only they're gorgeous, but these are all things that I put in my body and I generally would feel pretty good about it, right? So, so why wouldn't you put broccoli in your body?
2: Broccoli is well. a great example. So, so broccoli is a brassica vegetable. These are the family from an ancient mustard. And on the cover of this, there are some things which are fruit, some things which are roots, some things which are stems and leaves, and we will differentiate between them. Broccoli is sort of a stem and a leaf, right? Mm. It's kind of the flowering portion of an ancestral mustard plant. It's the same plant as kale. It's the same plant as cauliflower. The mm. same plant as Brussels sprouts, collard greens, et etc. et cetera. Now,
0: greens, which we told are the the best thing for us, oh too. yeah, best yeah. thing for us. Too. So yeah. every day when I used to when we were living in Montana, in fact, when I first started uh, dating Beck, she loved that I, I always had a, a like a, a little Ziploc bag full of spinach in my pocket. Every day I would go and bring it to wherever I was going, so I could add greens to like my burrito bowl or something. We should
2: talk about spinach. Spinach is a particularly nasty one because of oxalates. The oxalates, okay. Mm. Spinach is super high in oxalates. Uh, which are a, a dicarboxylic acid that's a waste product in humans that can be present in 10 to 100 times the amounts in many of the vegetables and they sort of do chelating roles in vegetables where they hold on to minerals but in human bodies They're known to accumulate in tissues. Mm. In the book, I talk about oxalates, and I'll get back to broccoli in a moment. In the book, I talk about oxalates being deposited in thyroid. They've done autopsy studies, and over 70% of people had oxalate deposits in their thyroid. Mm. Oxalate doesn't have a physiologic role in the thyroid. We see oxalate deposits in breast tissue. There are many research that that have concerns that oxalate deposits in breast tissue may trigger precancerous lesions.
0: Mm. Where else do you get oxalates? Almonds?
2: uh, Almonds, beets, turmeric, spinach... Man, uh, all the things I love. Navy beans. <laughs> so, And they also are associated with kidney stones. Yes. The most common type of kidney stone is calcium oxalate. Mm. Right. And there's a genetic condition called primary hyperoxyluria where someone makes more oxalate because of a deficiency or a defect in a biochemical pathway. But we can create levels of oxalate in our body that are as high as someone with that genetic problem by eating large amounts of oxalate containing foods. Mm. You're not going to like this one. Okay. Chocolate. Oh, man. Pretty high in oxalate. Right. Okay. Man. So that's the spinach yeah. thing. Right. Like, and then there's a whole.
0: not chocolate because it's a bean. It's, so it's a. It's a seed. It's a seed. Seed, right? Yeah, it's a seed, yeah. and we but it's talk. fermented,
2: uh, <laughs> right? So the fermentation actually gets rid of many of the polyphenols, which are also
0: toxins. We're just getting—we're told that polyphenols are good. For I know,
2: us. right? Exactly. Yeah. And So there's a whole chapter about this in the book about how <laughs> they've been widely misconstrued. So I'll talk about broccoli, which has isothiocyanates, which are not a polyphenol, but we'll illustrate this mechanism, and we'll get into hormesis. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so many exciting rabbit holes to go down, you guys. Yeah, we just yeah. can't even help ourselves. Yeah. So. Broccoli is this ancestral mustard plant. It's a flowering plant, right? And throughout evolution, broccoli has developed this ingenious booby trap. You ever seen Goonies? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Booby traps. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Broccoli has a compound in it or a family of compounds in the family of brassicas called glucosinolates. A lot of big words coming out, you guys. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> glucosinolates, right? I already okay. feel like 10 times smarter. <laughs>
2: <laughs> glucosinolates are inert. They just kind of hang out in the broccoli. They're like a booby trap waiting to be sprung. When you chew broccoli or an animal chews broccoli, you Mm -hmm. break the cell membranes and there's an enzyme called myrosinase in the broccoli. It combines with glucosinolates, specifically glucoraphanin in the case of broccoli and makes isothiocyanates. It's kind of like when you combine the two things with super glue, you get this chemical reaction.
0: So why is that bad for me?
2: Because it's a booby trap, right? Because it makes isothiocyanates like sulforaphane. Mm -hmm. Sulforaphane is a
0: phytoelexin. But I'm told sulforaphane is good because of the hormetic response
2: exactly so then we have to unpack hormesis and what were are your, why you're told that okay? okay so sulforaphane we're told is good for you you probably have been told sulforaphane is an antioxidant right yes mm-hmm. it's completely false and no one would disagree with this no one in the scientific community can debate that sulforaphane is a pro-oxidant mm-hmm. then we have to unpack oxidation reduction okay a pro-oxidant is a molecule that creates free radicals in the human body probably mm-hmm. not a good thing mm-hmm. Other pro-oxidants, lead, mercury, alcohol, cigarette smoke, probably Mm. not good things, right? So, creates free radicals, right? We've been told it's an antioxidant because people are trying to kind of whitewash the actual system. And kind of simplify the science. The reason you are told sulforaphane is good for you, and this is where we get to hormesis, is because by being a prooxidant, it activates a system in the liver called the NRF2 system, which increases your endogenous production of glutathione and other endogenous antioxidants. These are molecules that are part of our human biochemistry that actually do the dirty work of taking care of irascible free radicals, okay? Mm-hmm. Sulforaphane does not do that directly. And so this is the concept of hormesis. Sulforaphane increases glutathione, right? That's all well and good until we expand the lens. And we realize, number one, that not only is sulforaphane doing that, but it's also circulating in the human body and doing all sorts of other negative things. So... When we go to the grocery store, to the pharmacy to get a drug, right? Hopefully not many people are taking pharmaceutical drugs, but if people are on statins or antidepressants, it comes with a package insert, which lists all of the other side effects. Yes, We are all familiar with the notion that if we introduce a foreign molecule into the human body, it may do one thing that we like it to do, but it's also likely going to do many Mm. other things that we don't want it to do. These are collateral effects. Plant molecules have the same thing. Of course, they're they're molecules, right? Plant molecule is a is a molecule. Plant sulforaphane is a molecule. It could be, mm-hmm. you know, synthesized and sold to you in a grocery store as a pharmaceutical. And it, if it were to have to do that, mm-hmm. they would have to give you a package insert that says this molecule also competes with iodine at the level of your thyroid mm. and may create hypothyroidism if consumed in excess without adequate iodine in your diet. wow! You guys ever seen the pictures from um, rural regions of the world where people have the big necks, the goiter? Mm -hmm. That's from consumption of isothiocyanate-containing foods without adequate iodine in the diet. Hmm. These are people who eat cassava, which is a widely grown root or other root vegetables that have other isothiocyanates that inhibit iodine production in the thyroid. Where do you get iodine? I get iodine from fish or egg yolks or there's a salt out of Utah Redmond sea salt that has a decent amount of iodine. So. Interesting.
1: Okay. So, all right. So these, uh, these booby traps, which lead to free radicals that circulate throughout the body, what, 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 is, what are bad about these free radicals? Oh, what do these free radicals do?
2: Well, free radicals are bad in general. Free radicals are good in small amounts, okay. right? Our body uses reactive oxygen species for signaling. They're okay. bad in small amounts, okay? What I was ta- they're bad in large amounts. Okay. I misspoke. Okay. okay. <laughs> what I was talking about first there is the fact that sulforaphane has all these side effects that we're never told about. Okay. Right, And I'll just explain that. And so when you take a medication, you expect that the benefits are going to outweigh the risks. Gotcha. So the benefits that we are told of with sulforaphane are that it's a hormetic, that it's going to increase glutathione. But what if I told you that there are many studies that show that you don't need that sulforaphane to have any extra glutathione, that you can make all the glutathione you need by jumping in cold lakes and rivers, by being in sauna, by being in the sun and by exercising. Mm. Then when we actually look at the net effect of fruits and vegetables, they don't give us more antioxidants. That is where hmm. the story falls apart. There's more
1: side effects than there are benefits. Exactly. Yeah. There are more hmm. side
2: effects than there are benefits. It's not a unique benefit. So the benefits do not outweigh the risks mm. and there are lots of risks. And all the molecules have different risks. We can talk about many different molecules. Okay. The sulforaphane molecule has risks because it's a pharmaceutical. It has a package insert.
0: I do want to talk about fruits in a moment. But first, uh, in your book, you have this concept of carnivore-ish. Yeah. And to me, it's like the palatable way for folks who are trying to improve their health. Maybe they have an autoimmune condition or maybe they have inflammation or they're just not feeling very good and they need to uh, take on some sort of elimination diet. What is carnivore-ish? Carnivore-ish
2: is, I think, where most people are going to find their sweet spot. It's making animal foods a large portion of your diet, realizing that you get a lot of nutrients from animal foods, and then thinking about plants on a spectrum of toxicity and excluding the plants that are the most toxic Mm. or the plants that trigger you the most. And so this is all kind of new thinking. It's kind of new hypothesis. In the book, I offer what my opinion is regarding which are the most toxic plants and a spectrum of plant toxicity. On the more toxic side, I think of things like seeds, Because those are the seed, the plant babies. They're highly defended in terms of anti-nutrients, digestive enzyme inhibitors, Mm. lectins, right? So
0: seeds, like if Ryan is eating a bag of sunflower seeds, that's that's not good. It's probably, those have lots
2: of the plant anti-nutrients in them and will probably cause lots of digestive issues. What Mm. other
0: seeds are bad?
2: So seeds is actually a broad botanical term, which includes grains, seeds, nuts, and legumes. They're all plant seeds, right? We're talking plant babies. Maybe in the book I should have called them plant babies,
1: right? Plant babies. Don't eat plant babies. babies <laughs> if you have issues right they're, they're so tender know. and
2: delicious <laughs> they're probably the most <laughs> immunogenic things out there
1: do, do you eat anything other than animal-based products so is there anything that doesn't come from an animal in your diet negative okay all right, all right salt
2: oh yeah well, that comes from the earth okay sure. so yeah. there are minerals you well, do so minerals do
1: yeah 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 so yeah. so what i'm hearing you say is you do minerals and do you do any supplements
2: i don't do any supplements right now okay nope. Nope. And
1: I notice you don't drink coffee. I don't drink coffee. And I'm assuming you don't drink alcohol then either.
2: I don't drink alcohol. It doesn't really serve me. Okay. I don't find it to be beneficial.
1: Is, is there a can um, be silly enough without it? Yeah, yeah. Is there a is there a health benefit to not drinking coffee?
2: I believe there is, and okay. you know, my good friend Ben Greenfield and I might disagree on this. There's a whole <laughs> there's a whole section in the book about R- coffee. When
1: he was here, he was like chewing nicotine. Gum. <laughs> I know. Man,
2: I love Ben. I love Ben, and I love that's I, good to have. You know, different ideas. It really is. It really is. So when it comes to coffee yeah when it comes to coffee so coffee's a seed right, right. oh yeah coffee's a seed it's a yeah. and it's not only a seed it's a bean it's a seed same thing yeah coffee's a plant baby it's a roasted plant baby uh. so in the book you get i talk about acrylamide which is pretty much considered a carcinogen happens when you roast things and you brown them mm. plant pesticides perhaps we're drinking amazing organic coffee here which is going to have lower pesticides mm-hmm. If coffee is not wet processed, there can be mycotoxins, which appear to be damaging for humans. Mm. And then coffee itself contains molecules, caffeic acid, chlorogenic acid, which are polyphenolic. And in the book, I talk about this. The polyphenols, many of the polyphenols, when they're studied, especially coffee polyphenols, have been shown to break DNA in cell culture. So oh, it wow. raises this question, you know, like how much of what we're doing is good for us and how much of what we're doing is actually harming us. Mm -hmm. And that's why I try to frame it from the perspective of you're buried in the sand, you're making toxins, right? Do we really think these things are good for us? And then we weigh the risks and the benefits. Is the benefit of coffee, maybe this is true for some people, maybe people enjoy coffee enough to outweigh the risks. Yeah. But for me, it's like, it's a black liquid. My breath smells kind of funny. My teeth get kind of dark and it doesn't give me any nutrients at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? And I believe the polyphenols to be dangerous and I don't think that we need them. So I, abso- I avoid coffee.
1: So again, like the side effects uh, outweigh the, 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 benefits the benefits we get from coffee. Yeah, interesting. So, so you know, back to, car- do, do you do teas?
2: I don't do teas. No green tea or anything. Same sort okay. of reason. There All are right. catechins in green tea that have been found to negatively affect oh, enzymatic but systems. But green tea is
1: so good for us. <laughs> it prevents heart disease and heart attacks, and people live longer who drink green tea. Epidemiology, right?
0: Yeah, man. Oh, wow. Epidemiology, back Crazy. to carnivore ish. So <laughs> the seeds are, are some of the worst things that we can eat. What are the other the other big toxins that uh, we need to avoid?
2: Brassicas. Mr. Broccoli here.
0: Okay. Brassicas. I mean, Dave Asprey says broccoli is the best thing to eat, though. Dave
2: Asprey needs to have a uh, wrestling match around broccoli. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah.
0: well, what else? So what's on the other side of the, the spectrum of, uh, of carnivore-ish that is, that is a, a bit healthier if you're less, going to indulge in plants? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: So I'll, I'll just tell you. I can tell you all the things that are on the toxic side. Then we'll go to the other side. So we got the seeds, the brassica vegetables, high oxalate foods. And so
0: high oxalate foods would be like uh, almonds and and uh, uh, the the spinach and uh, also sweet potatoes. Maybe sweet potatoes are moderate oxalate. Okay. Beets, white turmeric, potatoes,
2: not as much, but white potatoes are a nightshade. Okay. So then the nightshades and that's the more toxic things. Okay. okay. Really, the least toxic wow. side, and this is just kind of broad strokes, right? Sure. It's going to be individual, um, but I do think things like oxalate are probably harmful in most humans. Mm. Uh, The other side of the equation is, I think the least toxic things are non-sweet fruits. So fruits are generally the plants of, it's their plant's best shot. It's the pinup girl they put in the window that says, hey, look at me. I'm sexy. Come eat me. Mm-hmm. They're not going to put a lot of toxins in the fruit. They mm-hmm. might put toxins in the seeds that are in the fruit so that the animal doesn't really eat the seeds. Mm-hmm. or Because that's
1: what they want. The plant wants the animal to get rid of the seed to plant somewhere else. In a very right. nice fertile pile yes. of manure. Right, yeah. Right? yeah, yeah and they yes. want
2: the seeds to come out of the animal undigested.
1: Yeah. Right. So, so, so we're about avocados then.
2: Avocados, olives, squash, um, some of the non-brassica lettuces.
0: Um, so like romaine lettuce. Romaine uh, lettuce. Is kale? Okay, kale no. is brassica. Okay, okay. Yeah. Hmm. Romaine
2: lettuce. Berries are probably less uh, sweet. Like and then, blueberries in Blueberries, strawberries, raspberries. These are probably less toxic fruits in my opinion. And then in the middle, I put tubers. You know, and, and beets, of course, are high in oxalate. So I would put like sweet potatoes in the middle. White mm. potatoes are nightshades. Those are probably going to be a little more immunogenic. So sweet potatoes in the middle. and then Immunogenic means what? Triggering for our immune system. Because okay. that's really what we're talking about here, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. In our gut, we have all of this interface between all the foods we eat and the immune system. There's one cell layer, the endothelium that separates all the foods we eat from uh, trillions of immune cells just waiting to pounce on anything, right? We have this army just sitting there. Mm. And if you poke the army, Mm -hmm. you don't wanna piss the army off, right? There are, I think this is a very reasonable hypothesis for autoimmune disease, that it's coming from the gut, that it's coming from activation of immune cells in the gut. And so that is immunologic tolerance and immunologic activation we're gonna dive a
0: lot more into the gut ryan real quick uh we should move on to the lightning round we Tell should me what time it is it is
1: time for the lightning round where we answer your text messages you can text your questions and comments to 937 those texts go straight to both of our phones we can't answer every question, but we will reply to as many as possible. They really do go to both of our phones. And also, I love we, how people just constantly ask. Like, remember we were l- responding and someone was like, I don't believe it's you. I have trust issues. We just like took a selfie and sent it to him. Yeah. <laughs> so, Ryan and I were in Salt Lake City last week finishing the soundtrack for our
0: next film, Less is Now. And we did an impromptu meetup with just our text group of people. So, we just sent out a, a day before. We sent out a text that said, hey, meet us at this coffee shop. And almost 100 people showed That's up crazy. in Salt Lake City. And uh, thankfully, we recorded it. So if you're a Patreon supporter, we'll actually we'll share that with the folks who are on Patreon. But mm-hmm. uh, during the lightning round, this is where Ryan and I and now Paul do our best to answer every question with just a short, shareable, less than 140-character response. We also put the text of these minimal maxims in the show notes so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you like. And now you can find all of our... Minimal Maxims in one place. MinimalMaxims.com. Oh, and that uh, that meetup we did, it's called an Unscripted Meetup. We're going to do that in some other cities coming up. So if you want, you can sign up for our text
1: group. Just send us a text, nine three seven two zero two four six five four. 202 4654 Indeed. Uh, our question here is from Jessica. What? is inflammation and why is it so difficult to determine what's healthy so we have two questions here paul and really we can wander
0: on a little bit here but uh i've you've explained inflammation very succinctly in a way that i've never had a doctor explain it to me so i, I thought this was the perfect question for you to, to answer
2: inflammation is activation of the immune system and it can be good or it can be bad. Mm. We need inflammation to heal wounds. We need inflammation to fight diseases. But sometimes our immune system gets triggered unnecessarily and chronically. So inflammation mm. often has a negative connotation, mm. but it can be a very good thing in the body. But it's the way I think of it is activation of the immune system is inflammation. It is a cytokine milieu, which is all, a whole bunch of immune cells text messaging each other saying... There's a cleanup on aisle five, you know. There's an invader, you know. There's an invaders, mm-hmm. sacre bleu, invaders, <laughs> you know. And so that's that's generally what inflammation is. It's all the immune cells kind of sending out signals to each other that something is going wrong and something mm. needs to be done.
0: Mm. Okay. And so her question here is, why is it so difficult to determine what's healthy? I think we've already talked about that a little bit. We've, we've. Uh, there's a message that's been propagated throughout the media, and I think that the intentions here, by the way, are really good. A- and and when I see the healthiest people in my life, they're almost all omnivores, um, ex- with the exception of Rich Roll. Yeah. Everyone else I know is some sort of eats both animal products and a- and yeah. uh, plants, right? Yeah, I th- I'm thinking of Dr. Ryan Green who's been on our podcast for one of the healthiest people I know yeah. mostly plant-based my wife Rebecca is mostly plant-based but ha- has some animal products in her diet and so we're told that you know healthy is one thing but why is it so difficult to determine what's healthy my, my, my pithy answer is just health is perspectival and I think for each of us it's like saying athletic right like i can be the most athletic version of myself but i'm never going to be lebron james and i think the same is true with with health it's it's what is healthy for you what is most appropriate for you and i think there's a bit of a perspective there although i think paul would argue that Mm -hmm. there's maybe a a a foundation upon which we can build
1: i mean i totally agree with you josh because like so uh my wife she has a lot of gut issues and she tried to do like full carnivore, I mean, maybe like, I don't know, it was a few days. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, consistent, uh, this six week test. It wasn't this elimination diet per se, but right away, like in the first three days, she's like, Ryan, this isn't like, this isn't working for me. I have to have some carbohydrates in my diet. So I, you know, I guess, I don't know if she's doing it wrong. If she needs to give it longer of a, of a chance, but to Josh's point, it's like you could be carnivore. You're one of the healthiest dudes I've, I've ever seen. Like your skin is clear. You got veins popping out. You're probably 60 years old, dude. You look like you're 20. <laughs> but like Rich Roll, man, he's he's you know in his 50s, right? Yeah, yeah, and he and he looks younger than me, and he's and he's a vegan. So uh, to Josh's point, I do feel like health is this uh, sp- perspectival thing where it depends on how your How your genes are built and like what your DNA is really built for. Even though we look the same, we got ears, nose, eyes, mouth, uh, we're the same species, our genes still are affected differently with different foods.
2: Our genes are affected differently with different foods. And I believe that there is a fundamental ancestral human diet. And I, you know, and I told this to Rich when he was here, I think Rich would be even more of a monster if he ate meat. Mm, You know? So, how do you know how good you can be? if you're eating that way. Rich may be one of the small amount of people in this world, in this universe, who is able to detoxify all these plant toxins Mm. and able to use the nutrients in them well. I think the majority of people can't do that and that animal foods are the foundational thing for most people. Mm. Now, I think there is some genetic variation in terms of how many plant foods we can tolerate, which ones will be more sensitive to our systems than others. But the message that I'm hoping to share is that if people are not well, Mm -hmm. if they are having autoimmune disease, if they are having inflammation, Mm -hmm. imagine or realize that plant foods could be the trigger there. There's so much messaging now, go more plant-based, take meat out. Well, you can try that, but if that doesn't work, Plants could be causing Try this problem else. because of all the problems. Yeah. So, and do you we'll think have to talk offline about what was going on with your wife? Yeah, I was I'm curious. Say, yeah.
1: Well, I mean, you know, just anecdotally, like, do you think she should just keep keep pushing through the discomfort that she's experiencing. Well, what which she was she experiencing?
2: She's saying, I need more carbohydrates. What does that mean to her? Is she having diarrhea? Uh,
1: yeah. So I, I don't know the details of that. So yeah, maybe we will. I'll get some more information and maybe uh, I'll talk to you offline. on Many times
2: it. when people transition from a carbohydrate centric diet to a diet that is lower carb, mm-hmm. they're going to go through biochemical changes. Mm-hmm. There is keto flu. There's a drop in insulin. People are going to need more electrolytes. There mm-hmm. are all kinds of things that can happen to us as we transition. So So it depends what she's experiencing there. And I think we could probably walk her through that, whether it was a GI thing or sort of feeling, um, there is biochemical changes that happen Mm -hmm. um, as we transition off carbohydrates. And I'll just add that evolutionarily, I just don't think we've had that many carbohydrates in our diet. Okay. To have 300 to 400 grams of carbs a day is, in, is pretty much impossible in mm. the natural world. And I think that being in ketosis is probably our default state, but so many of us have never been there. So we go there for the first time. It's like the first time you go to Morocco. Mm. You're like, I've never been to Morocco. Right, mm-hmm. a lot of people have never been to Ketosisville, yeah. and <laughs> yeah. Ketosisville is a different place than yeah. what you're used to, and you have to take a plane to Ketosisville,
1: and sometimes and that plane about, has turbulence. We're yeah. going to
0: talk about all the benefits uh, of ketosis, and, yeah. and and also cycling in and out. We've got a lot more to talk about, yeah. Ryan. You've got a, a yeah. Quick my
1: pit uh, the answer to that to Jessica's question there is health is a journey, not a destination, and I think so many people, uh, and we'll talk about this during the podcast. You know, people focus on well, I want to lose weight, or you know, I want to have big veins popping out of my out of my arm. And then they get to that point. Well, to stay at that point, like you still have to continue down that road of health. So, yes, health is not a destination, it is a journey. All right. Before we get into our added value segment and our listener tips
0: today, it looks like we've got a bunch more to discuss this week, including cholesterol, carbohydrates, gluten, sugar, fructose, processed foods, toxins, and plant toxins. And uh, allergies and food sensitivities and why we get them and what to do about them. We're also going to talk about autoimmune issues, skin issues, acne, depression, mental illness. Oh, and supplements. I have a pocket full of supplements. Uh, We'll talk about the ethics behind eating meat. I think that's an important discussion that we need to dive into. Also, some of the best foods for the gut microbiome and what we understand about the microbiome and what we don't understand Also, maybe we can make an argument for a plant-based diet and so much more with Dr. Paul Saladino. Oh, we've got this article too. Can babies learn to love vegetables? Oh, and uh, we're going to talk about weight loss as well. And if you want to hear all that, listen to this week's Maximal episode. That's right, you're currently listening to our weekly Minimal episode. But each week, Ryan and I record an entirely different, much longer, much more personal Maximal episode on the Minimalist's private podcast, which gives us the private space we need to talk about topics we don't usually discuss in public. Plus, it's the best way for us to fund this podcast and keep it 100% advertisement free. When you subscribe to the Minimalist's private podcast on Patreon, you'll receive a personal link so that our Maximal episode play in your favorite podcast app. Find all the details over at theminimalists.com
1: slash support. Ryan, what else you got for us this week? Here are some voicemail comments and tips from our listeners. Check them out.
3: Hi, my name is Yarden and I'm calling from Brooklyn, New York. I um, had an idea uh, regarding minimizing baby stuff um, in regards to a question that appeared on the parenting episode. Um... I find it incredibly hard still to get rid of anything that has my baby's name on it. Uh, he's almost one year old. Uh, but I do find that with time and as he becomes more ingrained in our lives, it gets easier. And I don't feel that I need to hold on to every single thing. So my idea is that um, in 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 line with um, the minimalist attitude in general to revisit things, Um, Every few months, I kind of take a look at the things that I've kept around, Um, cards that we got when he was born, little gifts that we never used, stuff like that. And every few months, I find that I can get rid of a couple more things that don't actually add that much value or mean that much anymore. Um, So, you know, it's kind of an ongoing process. It's not a one-stop shop, but it works.
4: Hello, my name is Nadia, and I'm from Denver, Colorado. With spring cleaning around the corner, I have a tip to share on ethical recycling of unwanted clothing items. There's an online consignment store called ThreadUp where you can recycle your clothes for cash, credit, or donation. One of the best things that we can do for our planet is to consume less. But if we're going to consume, buying secondhand is a great option. So here's how it works. You can order a kit from their website at www.threadup.com and that is T-H-R-E-D-U-P. You fill up the box with unwanted clothing items and send it off. They do all the work. They inspect the clothing, they take pictures, and they sell it for you. And you can either get cash back or credit to their store to use on items that you may need, or you can choose a charity of your choice to donate your proceeds to, which is personally my favorite option. And the best part is that whatever doesn't sell They will ethically recycle those items for you. They're a great company to collaborate with, with a wonderful philosophy on making a positive impact on our planet, which is if more people wore secondhand clothing items, that would mean less waste. And if everyone in the U.S. bought just one item used instead of something new this year, it would save nearly six billion pounds of carbon emissions.
0: All right, y'all. Thanks again to Dr. Paul Saladino. Indeed, I want to encourage you to check out his book. It's called The Carnivore Code. You can also find him online at carnivoremd.com and his podcast, The Fundamental Health Podcast. We'll put a link to all that in the show notes as well as his YouTube channel and his social media. You can find him over there. He's always doing a lot of... um, pretty wild things on social media (laughs) Uh, real quick for right here right now here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalists well it's almost the end of february at this point and the 24th and the 25th we're opening up enrollment for my writing class so you need
1: to write good words
0: (laughs) (laughs) could you write more gooder than you write right now if so uh, so you can download the free ebook. It's 11 ways to write better over at how to write You can also sign up for the email list uh, when you do that and we will notif- notify you. The first hundred people can sign up for my writing class. I, I tend to offer this two or three times a year and I believe the rising tide lifts all boats. So I've had medical doctors take this class. I've had high school students take this class. I've had folks who are English as a second language take this class. You, you can, you can, Really, you give me four weeks of your life and I will show you how to write better. Mm. I will give you a, a little bit of a warning though. It is It, it does require some work. Uh, so if you can't dedicate an hour a day, it's probably not for you and that's okay. You can still get all of my free writing tips over at there at org. But if you give me four weeks, I can help you write better for sure. You can follow The Minimalists on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The Minimalists. If you have a question, comment, or minimalism tip for our podcast, email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. Comment on this episode at youtube.com slash Minimalists. If you want our show notes in your inbox, sign up for our email list over at theminimalists.com. You also receive our simple Sunday emails each week. Ryan, for our added value this week, let's listen to a new song from Noah Gunderson. Ooh, He's going to be with us pretty soon on tour. Yeah, we're going on the West Coast tour. He'll be with us in Seattle. He won't be our musical guest, but he will be our podcast guest in Seattle. And uh, he has this new acoustic album out called A Raven and a Dove. And this is kamikaze from that album. And if you leave here today with just one message, we hope it's this. Love people and use things. Because the opposite never works.
1: Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Wait.
3: She said, I can wait. For your pain.
2: For your love. No promise